Welcome to Hope Awakens, presented by It Is Written. I'm so glad you're joining us. We are looking for answers in a time when the landscape is shifting and changing. You are joining people around the world for Hope Awakens. Greetings to our friends in Spokane Valley, Washington. Greetings to Costa Rica, to Fairbanks, Alaska. Jan is in Rock, Michigan, in the Upper Peninsula, between Lakes Michigan and Superior. Rudolin is joining us from the Philippines. Panama, sorry, pa Pamela, not Panama. Pamela, Pamela's in the Rocket City. That's Huntsville, Alabama, home of NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center and Oakwood University. Dave is in Redding, Pennsylvania. Hi, Dave. Hi to Doris in Spavanaugh, Oklahoma. That's five miles in a straight line from Hoot Owl, Oklahoma. And Spavanaugh is the birthplace of Mickey Mantle. Hi to Rochelle in Huntley, New Zealand. That's where I was born. Billy is in Lancaster, California. Pilar is watching from Peru. Brenda is in Lewistown, Pennsylvania. And Tina is joining us from West Auckland in Aotearoa. We are learning together that there is hope in this moment. Thanks for being part of Hope Awakens. I'm John Bradshaw from It Is Written. This is Hope Awakens, a series of presentations in which we are finding answers to the most pressing questions that we are facing right now. And tonight of all nights, we're finding out that there is hope, even as people are ailing and economies are struggling and scientists are striving and virtually the entire world is sitting tight, hoping we can get back to life as normal as soon as possible. Now we start each night by answering your questions. So we're gonna get right to that. First, I want to tell you, we will do our best to answer your question, but if we cannot, it's simply due to the volume of the questions we're receiving, which is no reason you shouldn't submit your question. Please get it to us. If it seems like I have missed your question, do submit it again and we'll take another run at it. Go to hopeawakens.org and there you will find resources, previous presentations, the opportunity to send us a prayer request and we will pray for you. And that's where you can submit your questions as well. Now tonight, I would like to offer you a free book called Promises of Power. Here it is. Make sure you are registered at hopeawakens.org so we can get this to you by email. So if in the next few hours or maybe tomorrow morning, you receive an email from Hope Awakens with an attachment and it's called Promises of Power, you will know that is one of my team sending this to you so you can be blessed. So that's a, a free gift, a free resource we are sharing with you tonight. Remember at hopeawakens.org, you can submit your questions. To ask your questions, here's my good friend, Doug Naar. Doug, thanks for joining me. Hey, John, it's good to be here. And also with our viewers at Hope Awakens, we've got some very good questions tonight. And here's the first one. Everything you say requires faith in a personal God and in the Bible. I seem to be wavering back and forth and I don't seem to find an answer for me. Well, the answer is faith. Now, if you're wavering back and forwards, you're gonna waver backwards and forwards until you choose not to. It's just that simple. The Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And you are gonna choose to believe that or not. The Word of God says so. Now. I'm not advocating blind faith. You can find tons of scientific evidence to back that up. 
many other good reasons why you should believe the Bible. The Bible says God forgives you of your sins. You can choose to believe that or not. The Bible says Jesus died for you. You can believe that or not. You look through the Bible and you will find tons of evidence as why the Bible is a trustworthy document. Archaeology bears out this book. History bears out this book. The manuscript evidence suggests that this book is absolutely believable. If you want to deal with doubt, here's what you do. You have faith. That's not saying don't find good reasons or evidences for your faith, but have faith. Faith is believing that the Bible says what it means and means what it says. Believing it is true because it says it is true. Take hold of the book. Choose that you will trust the God who can be trusted and you will find that many of your doubts will disappear. You know, it has never been explained uh, to me about uh, calculating time. Was there a 001 BC and then to a 001 AD and then to our time? And who, where did this all begin and who started counting? Well, long ago it was decreed that Jesus died right about here. So everything before that is BC and everything after that is AD. It doesn't really matter. We reckon that this year is 2020. Uh, those who, who look at Usher's chronology of the Bible are gonna tell you that we've been on this earth right around 6,000 years. Uh, where the, the line should be drawn really is immaterial. So Google it read an article out of an encyclopedia, but whatever you do, don't let it bother you or undermine your faith. How can my faith be practical and not misunderstood as an abstraction by others? You know, I find that some Christians, uh, they're unable to speak uh, common talk and they find themselves always lost in religious talk. Okay, yeah, good thought. Well, firstly, you ought to be a Christian and be lost in uh, wherever God is guiding you. Don't worry about whether your faith is palatable to non-believers, although you ought to try to be accessible. If you are just you and pray that God will guide you, that will be enough. Sometimes we can bend too far in that direction so that we're no longer distinctively Christian or distinctly people of faith. How to make it relatable? Just be you. Be a relatable person. Don't be weird. Be about as normal as you can be, but be a Christian first and let God translate your life into something that others can appreciate. I understand that the earthly sanctuary was built according to the heavenly sanctuary. What I don't understand is why is there a sanctuary in heaven when there's no sin there? Ah, but is that actually the case? Think about this. When you confess your sins, where do they go? By faith, you send them to your intercessor who is in the heavenly sanctuary. I'm not suggesting that the building up there in heaven is getting soiled, I don't mean that, but the same, uh, the same procedure that went through here on the earth takes place in heaven. Here there was intercession ministry in behalf of sin. That's taking place in heaven as well. So this is why the earthly sanctuary was modeled after the heavenly, because what took place here physically and literally and with animals and blood takes place there with our sin and the blood of Jesus. On Friday night, John, you stated quickly that Jesus is the creator. Do you have any Bible verses for that? I do, I do. Let me take you in the Bible to, and I'm gonna to have to turn to this now because you just caught me on the hop a little bit. John 1, I think this is about the best place to go. John chapter one, verse one. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. 
all things were made by him. That's about as clear as you would want anything to be. All things were made by him. And over in the book of Colossians and chapter 1, speaking of Jesus, it says in verse 16, for by him were all things created. Those are the Bible verses you're looking for. I notice you read from the King James Version Bible. I find this version very difficult to understand. Would you recommend another translation? Have you used other translations? Well, respectfully, I'm going to challenge your powers of observation because in Revelation today, we're using almost exclusively a New King James Version of the Bible. I like the King James, but the reason I'm choosing to use the New King James is for the reason that you are suggesting. There are some people, particularly people who aren't that familiar with Christianity, who find some of the archaic language a challenge. So use the version of the Bible that you want to use. Use a version. Don't go with a paraphrase. But if you don't want to use the King James, I, you're asking me for a recommendation. I would recommend the New King James and many of my theological friends would recommend the New American Standard Bible. The last thing I want to do and the last thing I will engage in is a war over Bible translations. That's not necessary. So what we're mainly using is the New King James. Uh, I hope that works for you. If it doesn't, God will lead you to what does. John 3:17 says that Jesus came into this world not to judge, but to save. Why do you say that Jesus is our judge? Ah, good question. We're dealing with different points in time. John 3:17 is one of the most underestimated, underutilized verses in all of the Bible. We know John 3:16, verse 17 says, "For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, and that word condemn can be judge, but that the world through him might be saved." It's a beautiful verse. But that was during Jesus' earthly life. He's in heaven now. So he has moved into another phase of his ministry, which is judgment. On earth, he wasn't here to judge. In heaven, he's engaged in a work of judgment, which is simply reviewing our lives and honoring the decisions that we have made for or against God. My mother passed away recently, and it made me wonder, if you die before accepting Jesus, will you still make it into the kingdom of heaven? Oh, no, that's not something I would recommend. The Bible says that we're saved uh, through Jesus. There is no other name by which we might be saved other than the name of Jesus. Now, can it be that somebody wasn't a Christian and can be saved? I think we could say that's possible. I'm not going to give you examples. I'm not recommending not being a Christian, but I'm going to say that it seems that maybe there are some who responded to all the knowledge of God that God revealed to them and they might be found in heaven. So I want to tread carefully here. Let's trust God to be the judge and let's know the Bible says that salvation is through Christ. So put your faith and your trust in Jesus. Can you explain the rationale between one day equals one year in Bible prophecy, but one day in creation is the 24-hour period? Oh, yes. The difference is prophecy. Now, Ezekiel 4 and verse 6 and Numbers 14 and verse 34 indicate that there are times that God uses a day as a symbol of a year. He uses many prophetic symbols in the Bible, such as a beast in Daniel chapter 7 that is said to represent a kingdom or a nation. So prophetically speaking, a day may equal a year. When you get into Daniel and you look at the time prophecies in Daniel, that's the only way they make sense. Now, creation was not 
a prophetic thing. That was a literal account. So at creation, a day is a day. When Jesus died on the cross, that, they were days we're dealing with, not years. But in prophecy, where things are uh, 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 figurative and representative, the day would be a year. Is it okay for Christians to be involved in politics? I know of some people who are involved in rallies and protests and political activities. Is, is that okay? Well, you ask God if that's okay. Uh, Joseph was a politician. Daniel was a politician. So clearly God can have solid believers in political situations. Now, certainly like every role that can bring with it some challenges. Uh, so, so I would say to anybody who's a believer and is involved in politics, tread carefully. You'll be interested in tonight's guest based on what this question is. And we know that here in the United States, there are many committed men and women of God who are involved in politics. So uh, being a Christian doesn't mean you shouldn't. I think it means you should tread wearily or warily and carefully. John, you made a statement of comparing Scripture with Scripture. How do you do that? Well, you look at what the Bible says here and compare what it says there. Paul uses this phrase here. How else does he use it? Jesus said something. How do people refer to that later on? The Old Testament Bible writers used phraseology that the New Testament Bible writers pick up on. So look around the Bible and compare and gather what as many Bible writers as possible have said on certain subjects. And uh, that's a healthy way to study. Now, you mentioned the, the, the decree from King Artaxerxes to rebuild Jerusalem as being the beginning of the, the 490-year prophecy. Yes. Now, where in the Bible does it say he made the decree to rebuild Jerusalem? Right. That's in Ezra chapter 7. I mentioned Ezra last night. Might not have said chapter 7. Read from about verse 13 down to about verse 26. And the decree you want is the one to restore and rebuild. That decree, it's there in Ezra 7. How do you explain 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, which uses a courtroom metaphor to illustrate Jesus as our advocate, pleading our case before the Father as if to convince Him to accept Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf? Oh, no, no, that's not the case. Jesus isn't trying to convince an, a hard-hearted judge. Go back to the sacrificial system. When the high priest ministered the blood of the sacrifice, that wasn't to convince God to accept the person's penitence. That wasn't the case at all. It was simply representative that the person was penitent. Jesus is in heaven not to twist the arm of his father, but to minister the benefits of his shed blood or the merits of his shed blood. So this isn't trying to cajole an unwilling uh, authority into being merciful, not by any stretch. Be careful how you look at that. When churches reopen, will we still practice social distancing, keeping six feet away from each other? <laughs> you know, I don't know. <laughs> we'll, have to, we'll have to wait and see. It'd be interesting to see how that shakes out. Now, I lost my husband 10 months ago, but I would love to know when I die, will I be with my husband in heaven? And will we live like we lived here on earth? We shared 56 years together. Well, congratulations on 56 years of marriage. And my heart goes out to you because you've suffered a great loss. I'm so sorry. In heaven, here's what we know. The relationships we have there will be better than they were when they're on earth. So whatever marriage is going to look like, it's going to be better. So you keep your eyes on Jesus and look forward to spending eternity with him and knowing your husband on a whole new level throughout eternity. The enemy knows my weakness and he's attacking me severely at it. And I can't get away from this one sin. I feel that it's separating between me and God. 
I pray and I pray for the Lord's help, but the Lord's help, but it seems to get me nowhere. What biblical advice can you point me to to help me overcome this problem? Okay. Well, here's what you do. The Bible says that we should consider ourselves to be dead to sin. Now, if this sin is getting you down, you go to God and you say, I've had enough of this, no more. Claim Bible promises. Claim the promises that speak to whatever it is, this is you, what you are wrestling with and tell God that He is to deliver you from this. Remember 1 John 4 verse 4, greater is He that is in you than he that is in the world. So put your foot down, tell God it's got to stop, tell Him you are willing. By the way, if this is an addiction sort of a thing, go to a counselor, get a support group around you. If it's an internet sort of a thing, pull the plug and cancel whatever you need to cancel and get password protection and, 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 and have a, somebody watching over your shoulder to keep you accountable. There are things you can do to get folks to help you with certain challenges you know. But go to the Lord, claim the promises of the Bible, tell God it's gotta happen, you're willing for Him to do anything necessary to get this out of your life and God will indeed work. This is a good question. How do I know that I've grieved the Holy Spirit and it's too late for me? I know that it's not because you are asking, because you care, because you are watching Hope Awakens and there's something in your heart that's concerned about that. You are concerned that suggests with ample evidence that it is not too late for you and you have not grieved away the Holy Spirit. I think we've grieved away our time, Doug. Thanks yep. for asking the questions. Very good questions. Looking forward for more. I appreciate that a lot. Appreciate you getting your questions to us. <clears throat> Excuse me. Our guest tonight, a very special guest, happens to be the 62nd chaplain of the U.S. Senate. He's the pastor, the spiritual advisor to the senators of the United States. He's been in that role since 2003. And he holds the distinction of being the first African-American to fill that very important position. He is a native of Baltimore, Maryland, and it is my pleasure to welcome to Hope Awakens, Dr. Barry Black. Dr. Black, thank you for being with me tonight. It's my honor to be with you. We're honored. Let me ask you this. This is a time where many people are struggling for hope. Even in times of, of relative calm, there's plenty of reason that people lack hope or would like more. Uh, share with me what you would share with somebody who was looking for hope. Where would you point them? What would you say? Well, I would say to him or her that hope is a part of faith. Uh, and Romans 10, 17 says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, we renew our minds. So renewing your mind by exposing it regularly to the supernatural power of God's word is the greatest way to get faith, which according to Hebrews 11.1, 1, is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Can you share with me an experience from your own life where there was a time that you were looking for hope and maybe hope was in short supply. Tell me how you approached that and, and what got you through that. My mother died in 1987. She walked into a hospital. She was given the wrong medication. She went into anaphylactic shock and into a coma that she never came out of. It was near DC. I had general conference, uh, top leaders in the church come, 
and anoint her. We claim the promise of James 5.16 that if they're sick, anoint them and they will be restored. My mother died and I was devastated. I was hopeless and I was agnostic. I just didn't know what to believe. God managed to bring me out of that fog of depression and doubt when someone gave me an audio tape of my mother's last prayer. It was a prayer she prayed for an 11 o'clock service in church, the last time she was in church. And when I heard the sophistication of the prayer from a woman who only had a fourth grade education, and yet the prayer had to do with theodicy, why bad things happen to good people, I realized that the Holy Spirit was praying through my mother. I realized the supernatural power of God's foresight, and that brought me back to a stronger faith, and I have not looked back since. That's inspiring. Now, you're a a military man. Uh, I don't know if if I should say former military man. You retired from the Navy as a two-star rear admiral. That would translate to being a major general in the Army or the Air Force. In military situations, often people struggle with hope. Our servicemen and servicewomen get into very difficult situations. In a situation like that, how is a person to find hope and hope to see through that, that fog you just mentioned? Well, a military career is a great challenge. The centurion said to our Lord in Luke, I am a man under orders. When you are a person under orders, you can have a career-ending misstep at any time. You can do something that displeases the individual writing your evaluation, your officer efficiency ratings in the Army, your fitness reports in the Navy, and that can be the end of your career and can even be a demotion. You must learn to trust God to help you navigate through that labyrinthine journey from lieutenant to wherever you're going to end up. And let me tell you, Romans 1.17, the just indeed live by faith. All right, let's carry on. I got one more question for you along that vein. Biblically, if someone were to come to you and say, Dr. Black, uh, give me hope from the Bible. Share a couple of principles that you would say, here, this can fire you up and give you hope. Well, the thing that I would say, first of all, that would give you hope is Romans 8, 28, in everything, in everything. God is working for the good of those who love him, who are the called according to his purposes. Not our purposes, but his purposes. So whatever happens to you, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, God is working with it. We see that in the life of Joseph, who believed in the God who sent Christ. And Joseph was thrown in a pit, but the Lord was with him. Sold to a band of Ishmaelites, but the Lord was with him hit on, attempting to seduce him, Mrs. Portifer, every day. But Joseph had God with him, thrown in jail on trumped-up charges, but God was with him. And Joseph was able to say in Genesis 50, verse 20, to his brothers, you meant it for evil, hallelujah, but God meant it for good. I'm not so sure he said hallelujah, but I'm saying hallelujah, but God 
meant it for good. Oh, praise the name of Jesus. So in everything, God is working for your good. Trust that process, and he will, Hebrews 13, 5, never leave you or forsake you. You may have some loved one die because of COVID-19, but there is someone who will always be with you, Hebrews 13, 5, I, says the sovereign God of the universe, will never leave you or forsake you. Dr. Black, I cannot thank you enough. It is an honor to have you join us tonight, a real privilege. You've encouraged, you've encouraged us all. Thank you so very much for joining me on Hope Awakens. God bless you and keep hope alive. Amen. Dr. Barry Black is the chaplain of the U.S. Senate. He's in a very responsible and important position, and I am, we are blessed to have had him join us here tonight. Let me pray before we proceed. Our Father in heaven, speak to us from your word, I pray. Thank you for encouraging us already. And now, Lord, let your word do what it can do. Give us hope. Help us to find faith and courage. In Jesus' name, amen. One thing modern science has been looking for since the advent of the coronavirus outbreak is a cure. But alas, so far, no cure, no vaccine, no drugs that provide the knockout punch we're looking for. It's no surprise human beings are enamored with the idea of finding a cure for illness. That's appropriate. Of course, the advisable thing would be to do all you can to prevent getting ill in the first place. But even then, that can only provide so much protection. Even healthy people get sick. In the late 1800s and early 1900s, medicine shows were a thing in the United States. Traveling salesmen would offer elixirs of all kinds that were promised to be able to treat just about any malady you could think of. They were often referred to as quack medicines. And some of those so-called remedies contained about as much as 30% alcohol. Some of them also contained cocaine and morphine. You can imagine people might have felt good for a moment and then not so good and no one was getting healed. We are grateful for advancements made in medicine, but you know there's still no cure for HIV AIDS. Some very helpful treatments, but no cure. There is no cure for cancer as a whole, although we thank God many cancers can be successfully treated. Different cancers act in different ways. What's successful in treating one won't work in treating another. People are different. One person might respond to treatment while another person might not respond to the same treatment. People were saying over a hundred years ago, cancer would be gone within a few years. Not one of the greatest predictions ever made. Someone is diagnosed with cancer in the United States every 30 seconds. About 150,000 Australians are diagnosed with cancer each year. We'd like to find better treatments for stroke, diabetes, heart disease, but I'm gonna remind you, some of the very best treatments for many illnesses isn't treatment, but prevention. Sometimes the two best doctors you can know are Dr. Left Foot and Dr. Right Foot. Get them moving and they will be a blessing to you. Now, here's a funny old thing, and that is the placebo effect. A placebo is a medical treatment or a procedure which is designed to actually deceive the person receiving it. It could be a pill. It could be an injection. Placebos don't contain any active ingredients, but they often produce dramatic physical effects. Today, a drug isn't approved unless it produces a greater effect than a placebo. 
Placebos have been shown to produce measurable physiological changes, such as an increase in heart rate or blood pressure. Illnesses that rely on the self-reporting of symptoms, those are the ones that seem to show the greatest successes for placebos. Depression, anxiety, irritable bowel syndrome, chronic pain. An injection causes typically a stronger placebo effect than a tablet. Two tablets work better than one. Capsules are stronger than tablets, and larger pills produce greater reactions than smaller ones. It's even been found that the color of pills makes a difference in the placebo results. And because they've been so effective, a lot of study has been done on placebos as being a treatment in their own right, which says something fascinating about the power of the mind and the power of suggestion. Now, I wouldn't be surprised if somebody said, Faith is all you need in the fight against illness, except, of course, people of faith get sick too. So in the next few moments, I'm going to tell you about a cure-all, and I mean cure-all. What I'm going to share with you tonight is Earth's ultimate remedy, the cure for every ailment, every illness, every disease, every malady, and don't think for a moment that I'm kidding because I am not. Illness is a monster. It takes on many forms. It can be physical, emotional, external, internal. It can be mild or it can be serious. And we are living in a time right now of illness. I mean, we always do. But we've seen the rise of a new disease, an illness we've never fought before. And real people are dying. Every one of them is someone's daughter, someone's son, someone's parent, someone's brother or sister. We all know people who are gravely ill from one thing or another. But I want to tell you right now, there is a better day coming. Let's start in the Bible. The book of Revelation, chapter 21, verse 4 says, And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Hard to imagine, isn't it? No more death. Grandma would always be there. No more sorrow. No more crying. We have been marinated in grief and tears. No more pain? Wouldn't that be something? No more back pain or neck pain or joint pain. No migraines, no nerve pain. The Bible promises us no more pain. Well, what in the world is gonna, be, uh, is gonna happen to make this possible? Let's go back to the Bible. John 14, verse one, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That is a promise from Jesus Himself. I'm coming back. And when I come back, I'm going to take you to my Father's house. He's talking about heaven. Paul wrote to Titus, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In the book of Revelation, we see Jesus' return depicted in graphic terms. Revelation 19, starting in verse 11, John wrote, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, 
and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You can almost hear the hallelujah chorus. The return of Jesus is a cornerstone of the Bible. Even back in the book of Job, which is said to be the first book of the Bible to be written, we read this. Job said, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and He shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. Way back then, faithful Job was looking forward to the return of Jesus. So when is the return of Jesus going to happen? That's the million-dollar question, isn't it? Now, I think there are people who've made a million dollars suggesting they know when it's going to happen. There has been a slew of false predictions over the years, and I have no increase in increasing that number. I have no interest in increasing that number by one right now. Here's what Jesus said about that. Matthew 24, 36. But of that day or hour knows no man, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Only God knows. But we can know when it's near. Matthew 24, Jesus. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. We've already spoken about the kinds of things the Bible talks of as signs of Jesus' return. False Christs, wars and rumors of wars, disease epidemics, pestilences. We're seeing that. An increase in knowledge, secular, but most importantly, spiritual or theological. The proclamation of the gospel. If we are thinking straight, we'd have to admit that it seems like the return of Jesus would be soon. We don't have to set dates, but we can know when we are getting close. Now, many people call this return of Jesus the rapture. Look in your Bible. You will not find the word rapture in the Bible. But it's okay. The concept is there. God's people waiting to meet Jesus, caught up to meet Him when He returns. You'd think an important event like this so meaningful to everyone everywhere would be awaited by all believers and that every one of them would be ready for the day when it comes. But oddly enough, that is not the case. Some church folks just aren't aren't that interested. Many people who would not describe themselves as religious maybe are living without any understanding of what is promised here. But it's only a matter of history repeating. I'll tell you why. Israel had been looking forward to the advent of the Messiah ever since ever. God made a promise in the Garden of Eden that the Messiah would come. We saw last time we were together, Daniel predicted with incredible accuracy the very year the Messiah would be anointed. We discovered that would be the year 27 AD. They had been watching. It was there in the Scriptures all along. Remember the Christmas story? 
Who came from afar to see baby Jesus? The wise men. Why were they there? Matthew 2 says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east, and they came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Seen his star? What star was that? The wise men had evidently seen a mysterious light in the heavens. They saw a star. They searched the scrolls of the ancient records. The prophecy of Balaam had declared, There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Numbers 24, 17. If these magi living far away could figure it out, you would think that everyone in Jerusalem would have been expecting this Messiah to enter the picture. But they were asleep at the wheel. In fact, they were expecting the wrong kind of Messiah. Not unlike a lot of people today who feel that their faith ought to fit our lives rather than faith molding our lives. When Jesus came the first time, Israel had been looking forward to this for almost 2,000 years. And when Jesus came, the Bible says, He came unto His own, and His own received Him not. Isaiah said, He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. If a nation carved by God out of the rock of humanity, a nation that had access to the scrolls and carried a rich tradition of faith, could absolutely swing and miss when it came to the arrival of Jesus, we had better at least consider the idea that people today could also get it wrong when it comes to the second coming of Christ. Now, we don't have to get it wrong because the Bible says so much about it. Let me encourage you, read the Bible, pick it up, put down the remote for a moment and pick up the Bible. Read it, think about it, learn from it, chew on it. You don't have to believe what everyone else is saying, whether good or bad. Ask God to speak to you, to show you what you need for your spiritual growth. A fellow I know was on a journey, literally. He had crossed the country with some friends, was out doing his thing, living like a, living like he was not a believer, because that was the case. A lady at a market gave him a Bible when he bought some things from her. She gave him her own Bible. He read it and it turned his life around. Read, let me appeal to you. People tell you God isn't good. Read the only record we have about God. Decide for yourself. People tell you God isn't fair. Read for yourself and decide. People tell you faith in God is for the feeble-minded. Read for yourself and you'll see one way or the other. But do read for yourself. Taste and see. Investigate. Jesus said, but as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. In Noah's day, only eight people were saved. That's a concern, isn't it? Now, Jesus isn't saying that only eight people will be saved when He returns, but He's telling us a large number will not be. That's a serious warning. This is something you don't want to miss. It's why Jesus said in Matthew 24, 44, Therefore, you also be ready. It's encouragement from a God that doesn't want anybody to not be ready. Jesus wants you to be ready to meet Him at the second coming. And so God tells us about the second coming of Jesus. It's not hard to understand why Paul called it the blessed hope. No more death, 
No more separation, no more pain, no more crime or suffering or hatred or war. It's no wonder John prayed in Revelation 22:20, 20, even so come Lord Jesus. That's the last prayer in the Bible. And it's a prayer for the return of Jesus. In Acts 1, it says, Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. The angel said, Jesus will so come in like manner. So he's really going to return. This is something literal. The return of Jesus is not a spiritual event. It's not when you accept him in your heart. He's really going to come back to the earth. And notice this, behold, he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him. That is Revelation chapter one and verse seven. Matthew 24 and verse 30 says, then the sign of the son of man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Matthew 24, 27 says, for as lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. You can see lightning with your eyes shut. It will light up everything. Now let's read 1 Thessalonians 4, starting in verse 16. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Now that might just be the noisiest passage in all of the Bible. In August 27, 1883, Krakatoa erupted, an Indonesian island volcano. It said that eruption made the loudest sound ever made on this earth. It was heard 1,300 miles away in the Andaman Islands. They said it sounded like guns firing. It was heard 2,000 miles away in New Guinea and Western Australia. It was heard 3,000 miles away. That's 5,000 kilometers in the Indian Ocean near Mauritius. Imagine being in Auckland, New Zealand and hearing something from Sydney, Australia. Imagine being in Indianapolis, Indiana and hearing something all the way from Portland, Oregon. You'd hardly believe it. Well, this is going to be loud too. And you can believe it, the return of Jesus. But that's not all. In Psalm 50, it says, Our God shall come and shall not keep silent. A fire shall devour before Him. It will be very tempestuous all around Him. And so the return of Jesus will be literal. It'll be visible. It will be audible. It will be glorious. It will be amazing. What an event this will be. The world will see. The cosmos will be shaken and a people who have waited so long to see their Savior will see Him return in power. You've never seen special effects like this. Imagine what you'll see. Imagine what you'll hear. Imagine who you'll see. We'll see Jesus coming back. And God wants us to take this seriously. I lived for a time in London, England. Lived in North London. I would catch the number 73 bus to King's Cross Station. From there, I'd take the tube. It didn't matter really when you went up to the high street to catch the bus. If you missed it, 
there'd be another one along soon in just a few minutes. But the return of Jesus isn't like that. There's no place for being casual about it, planning on getting ready later instead of being ready now. Look at what Jesus said. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming, but know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. The passage speaks of the timing of Jesus' return. Because we cannot know when He's returning, we are told to watch and be ready always. It's important to God. 1 Thessalonians 5, 2, For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. You don't know when a thief is coming to your home. That's why you want to be constantly vigilant, taking security precautions. You can't afford to slack, to not watch. Like the airline employee who woke up in the belly of a plane headed from Seattle to Los Angeles just not that long ago. He was a baggage handler. He took a nap among the bags he had loaded onto the aircraft. He only woke up when a bag fell on top of him. Passengers heard him pounding on the floor beneath them. The plane had to turn around and go back to Seattle. The man fell asleep. He didn't watch. He didn't remain alert. Jesus says, we don't want to be like that man. We want to watch for the return of Jesus, to be ready for the return of Jesus, not to be sleeping and miss being ready for that great event. 2 Peter 3.10, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Jesus wanted us to be watching for this because He knew that not everybody would be. The Bible says that when Jesus returns, some will be saved and some will be lost. And I want you to notice, these are people who've had the same opportunities, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. Notice, two people engaged in the same pursuit, two people going about their business in the same way. They both should be saved. But Jesus said, one will be and one won't be. He said his return would be like Noah's day when some got on the ark and the vast majority did not. Those who took advantage of the provision God had made for their safety were saved. And those who ignored God's offer were not. We can't blame God for that. He didn't destroy the world with a flood because he was a tyrant but because evil had very nearly removed every last trace of hope. There would have been no nation out of which Messiah would have come. God destroyed the world so you could have a future, not because he's some sort of bloodthirsty ogre. Accusing God of cruelty would be like, it'd be like accusing a doctor of cruelty for amputating a gangrenous toe. You take the toe so the rest of the body has a chance. 
when Satan had just about destroyed the entire world, God removed the evil so there'd be a chance you could be saved. So there'd be two groups in the end, one saved, one lost, unnecessarily so. And God wants you to be in the group of people who, who welcome in eternity. Do we have to face the future with fear as we look forward to the return of Jesus? Oh no, Jesus invites us, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest, Matthew eleven twenty eight. He says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger and he who believes in me shall never thirst. That's John 6. Jesus said in John 7, on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood up and this is what he said. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. You see, Jesus invites you. The last invitation in the Bible is found just five verses from the end of the Bible. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts, come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. What an invitation. I met a lady one night, she'd been hopeless. She had given up on life. Everyone in her life had given up on her. She felt like there was no point living. She planned to take her own life. But you know what happened next. Someone invited her to read the Bible. And when she did, she found hope. She found a savior who welcomed her, a savior who loved her. She was changed. And now she lives in the hope of the return of Jesus. You know, this assures you that somebody loves you. Somebody cares for you. Somebody accepts you. And not just any someone, but the someone. There's a loving God who says there's something beyond this world. He's telling us that because he knows that so many people are going through so much right now. You're looking at losing a job. Well, God says there's a better day coming. You're caring for or, or worried about a sick family member. God says one day there'll be no more sickness. You're trying to figure out how you're going to make it in this world. God says, I've got you covered. You've had a run of bad luck. God says, I'm blessing you. And things are going to look better before too long. You've buried someone you love, lost a family member or a friend. God says, there's got to be a great reunion one day. There's a lot of pressure, a lot of struggling, a lot of hardship in this world. It might be hard to pay your bills. You might have got a diagnosis that was not good. You might have a relationship falling apart. But God says the best is yet to come. Don't give up on God when we have so much to look forward to. God wants you to have hope about the return of Jesus because when he comes back, He's coming back for you. I often get asked if Jesus is coming back secretly. No. His return is something you will see, something you will hear. That's what the Bible says. It says every eye is going to see him. Imagine the king or the queen of a certain nation coming to your town. There'd be a civic reception. The news media would cover the event. It would be a big deal. When King Jesus comes to your hometown to take you to be with him forever, He's not going to slip in unnoticed. You are going to know what an event that will be. But notice the urgency in Revelation 22. He who is unjust, or she for that matter, let him be unjust still. He, she who is filthy, let that person be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. 
and behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. So when Jesus returns, every case is decided. The saved will be saved. The lost, lost. There's nothing then that can be done to change it. You know what that means, don't you? It's why it's important to make a decision now and not wait. If you think you're unworthy, that's because you are. But you're never going to get to heaven because you're worthy. You'll get to heaven through faith in Jesus. If you think you're unready, it's all the more reason to make a decision for Jesus now and not wait for a moment. He saved the thief on the cross. He can save you. He saved that woman taken in adultery. He can save you. He saved the woman at the well. He saved a demon-possessed man who was living among the tombs. He wants you too. He offers you everlasting life. What are you going to do with that? When Jesus returns, the entire human race will be divided into two groups, the redeemed and the rest. Look at what Isaiah says. It will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him and He will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. We will be glad and rejoice in His salvation. Jesus is coming back. When He does, He will make a grand entry, befitting one who is King of kings and Lord of lords. The heavens are going to depart as a scroll and Jesus will come riding down the great corridors of space. Is the blessed hope your hope. Let me ask you where your confidence is right now. Do you have a future as bright as this one planned? If you're without God right now, how's that working out? Let's be honest. Where are you headed? God has something truly wonderful for you. True story. Homeless man was found by some boys playing in the snow near a bridge. Poor man had died from hypothermia. He died alone and broke. In order to get food, he would scratch through rubbish, trash cans. In order to get money, he'd beg. What he didn't know is that his great aunt had died a little while before and had instructed her lawyers to find her family members. He was one of the few that could be found. She left him $19 million. True story. He died homeless and penniless, when in actual fact, he was a very wealthy man. He fought hunger every day when he could have bought the local supermarket. He didn't have a home of his own, never slept in a bed, but he could have bought the five, the 10 most expensive homes in town and furnished them lavishly and had plenty of money left over. He just didn't know what he had. He didn't know who he was. Do you know who you are? Do you know what you have? Do you know how wealthy you are? 
Do you know what God has done for you? Do you know what God offers you right now? The man was the nephew of a wealthy woman. She was his great aunt and he just didn't realize it. You are a child of the King of heaven. You know that's true. Therefore, you have hope right now. Hope that soon you will be reunited with Jesus. You are not a spiritual pauper. You have access to heavenly riches. You have a future. Jesus is your elder brother. God is your father. But you say, I don't feel like I'm worthy. Let me ask you a question about that homeless man. Was he worthy of the $19 million? You might say no, you might say yes. Wasn't a question of worthiness, it was a question of relation. And it was a question of what the woman did. She left him $19 million. All he needed to do was say yes. And every day from then on would have been a much brighter day. Are you willing to say yes to Jesus right now? When you do every day from here on out will be a brighter day. And sure enough, soon Jesus is going to return to this earth. He's going to gather us together and take us home. It's not medication that's ultimately going to make this world right. It isn't a vaccine. It isn't money. It isn't politics. What's going to set things right is the return of Jesus. And we sense now that it won't be long. Paul called the return of Jesus the blessed hope. Is it your hope? It can be. Can you trust in Jesus? You may invite Him into your life. Believe that when you do, He comes into your life and makes it real and makes everything great. Come on, let me pray with you. Let's seal a decision for Jesus right now. Our Father in heaven, I thank you for the blessed hope. It's real that Jesus is gonna come back. He came before 2,000 years ago and He has promised us again and again, I will come again. Friend, would you welcome this Jesus into your heart right now. As you do, He comes. Lord, we thank You. And we pray tonight in the blessed hope, in Jesus' name, Amen. Thanks for joining me. Remember to get your free offer. Register at hopeawakens.com. We'll send that right to you. See you for more next time on Hope Awakens. And God bless you.